Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 12th, 2021, and this is episode 2934 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday. That means under our new schedule we've been under now for about two months, it is time for an expert council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup of the expert council for you today. Dr. Ken Berry today on how fasting works and how it leads to autophagy, why you'd want autophagy. doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? It's actually a great thing. It's something that I think can lengthen our lives, reduce the impact of illness in our lives, possibly even when done frequently, technically I would say cure things like cancer. Uh, Ken will explain what I mean by that. It'll make sense after you hear it. I'm not saying if you have like advanced stage four cancer, it is the key to curing yourself. I'm saying that people who routinely fast, who routinely enter autophagy, may actually clear cancers before they become a problem. Next up, Chef Keith Snow on getting your chef on with tartine. What the hell is tartine? Uh, it's kind of cool. He'll tell you all about it. Derek Aban Pietro will talk about choosing a generator in a multi-use scenario. Jeff Lawton will talk about designing in an area that gets flash flooding, specifically the American Southwest. Uh, Jeff said a long, long time ago on the show, and it was one, one of those things that stuck in my head and won't go away. When you design in a desert, you are designing to a flood. And that's something that we don't think of because in deserts we think of a lack of rain. But we get when we get rain, we get lots of rain, and we get lots of runoff, and it's all really fast. And it all comes in torrents. So we need to design to the flood so that the problem becomes a solution. John Pugliano will talk about calculating and using moving averages. Tim the Toolman Cook has another one of his handyman grab bags, three different subjects to talk about, knocked all out about eight minutes flat because he's a pro. And I'm going to talk about principles over privileges. And I'm going to change privileges when I have this, at least for part of this, to preferences. This is based on a quote of the day that I'll cover when we get there, but it's by Dwight Eisenhower. He said, a people that values its privileges above its principles soon loses both. And I want to talk to you when we have that discussion a little bit about how a quote seen outside of its time can take on prejudice or take on connotations that do not apply to it when it was said. When you hear me say a people that values its privileges over its principles you probably think about privilege, like as in white privilege, etc., and the way that that word gets bantered around today. Well, I'm actually going to read a portion of Ike Eisenhower's um, first inaugural address. Uh, it's not real long. It is incredible. It's the kind of thing that makes you wonder what happened to leaders in our country. And it includes this quote. And this quote is from, since it's Eisenhower's first inaugural address, January 1953. So I promise you, when Ike said privileges here, he wasn't using it the way that um, eh, people use it today. But when I read this whole thing to you, I think you're going to realize how far this country's fallen relatively quickly. Relatively quickly. If you look at the number of decades we're talking there, we're talking what? Seven decades? Seven decades. 
and we've fallen so far so fast. Um, I'm not a big fan of any politician, but probably the the president of the United States that I respect the most in modern history is Ike Eisenhower. I mean, we're going back pre-Civil War for me to find somebody that I might put ahead of him. And I think when you hear what I have to say today, you'll understand at least partly why. And I think you'll understand how principle first is really the way that any unified people must live. Principles over our preferences is the way that my good friend Vin Armani put it. And I'm wondering now, reading this quote by Ike, if that might be at least part where he got it, knowing as well read as Vin is. All right, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into this today, starting out with Dr. Ken Berry talking about fasting. What can you actually consume during fasting? Not much. What is autophagy, and why do you want it? Ken, take it away. Hello, all you TSP fanatics. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm answering a question from Matthew in Missouri. Dr. Berry, what can you consume while intermittent fasting with regards to autophagy? I have heard, read that the main benefit of intermittent fasters is that after a period of not eating, your body will enter a state where it will break down old or damaged cells. Are there any foods or drinks that will keep you in the state? Could something like chewing gum be enough to break your fast? Great question. So first of all, what is autophagy? Basically, your body has developed a mechanism through millennia of uh, evolution that when you're not eating, your body will actually take that opportunity to break down old cells, damaged cells, and actually the tiny little cell organelles inside the cell and recycle them and repurpose them and use them other places. And this is very, very efficient. There's research that shows that this probably uh, destroys cancer cells before they get out of hand. It also, uh, through a process called mitophagy, breaks down old and damaged mitochondria, which are your little powerhouses in your cells and your body, and then produces new vibrant mitochondria. So that, that's one reason why intermittent fasters notice an increase in energy level. The thing that really completely breaks your fast is any kind of carbohydrate whatsoever, whether processed or naturally occurring. Uh, and the, the second thing is too much protein or really any protein at all in what you drink or eat is going to break your fast because both of these things raise your insulin level. Fat, the third macronutrient, doesn't raise your insulin level much at all, and this is why some people can put some butter or some heavy cream in their coffee, and it doesn't break their physiological fast because it doesn't raise their insulin level enough to tell the body to stop this process of autophagy. So the things you can drink while you're fasting are definitely any kind of water, any kind of, uh, whether it's still or sparkling, you can drink black coffee or unsweetened tea definitely during a fast. Some people can add some butter or heavy cream and it doesn't seem to break their fast at all. For And so we're all different when it comes to hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. So for some people, chewing some, some sugar-free cinnamon gum might not affect their fast at all. For others of us, that might, just the sweet taste in your mouth might be enough to raise your insulin and break your fast. The same goes for putting any sweetener in your coffee or tea. Uh, even the, the keto-approved sweeteners, for some of us, I think it breaks our fast, slows down weight loss, and slows down the process of 
autophagy and mitophagy. These are two very, very sexy and important things that happen in your body when you're not eating or drinking anything that raises your insulin level. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. I guess the the thing that I would add to that is broth, um, which is kind of like meat tea, I guess, or bone tea, uh, or even vegetable tea. Like a, a, a cup of broth will have somewhere between, depending on what it's made from, three to ten calories. So if you were to drink a, a cup or two of broth, I mean, at maximum, you're looking at 20 calories. You're looking at no sugar unless you've put sugar in the broth, which thou shalt not put sugar in thy broth, okay? Um, but I will often have during kind of, and I don't do a lot of like multi-day fasting or something, like that, but I do a lot of intermittent fasting. There's a lot of days that I'll go, uh, my, my meals will be maybe six hours apart. I'll have two meals a day, six hours apart, which means I'm going, what, 18 hours without any food. And during that period of time, I may, you know, go dump a, a cup of bone broth into a mug throw that in the microwave, maybe even toss a little bit of herbage in there to, to give it a little more flavor, uh, a little cilantro or a little rosemary or something like that, or maybe even chop up a small amount of ginger and throw it in there and, you know, sip that. And that's actually, and with some salt, that's actually, it's pretty decent at appetite suppression. Um, and it's certainly just not going to have enough. If you think about, let's say it has 10 calories. Well, uh, get up, walk to the bathroom, take a dump, and come back, and you've expended more than 10 calories. You haven't give your, given yourself enough of a caloric boost to really matter. Um, there, there's no sustained caloric yield from that. And to me, that's the key thing here more than anything else is, do you create any sort of sustained caloric yield? Can your body stop drawing from reserves for any length of time. If it can, you're not fasting. If it can't, then you are. Anyway, that's my thoughts on it. With that, let's go ahead and talk about, well, talk about fasting. Now let's talk about eating. Chef Keith Snow on Tartine. If you don't know what Tartine is, get ready to find out. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I've got an idea for you out there that, are gardeners or you um, have a lot of vegetables to use or just looking for some um, new ideas for foods, which I think are pretty good for the summertime, and uh, also if you eat bread. So um, they're called tartine, and, and you see these, it's like a French sandwich. You see them a lot in, in places like Belgium and, of course, France, and they're sort of open-faced um, sandwiches, and they usually have very creative toppings. And I think the tartine is what spawned the whole avocado toast trend that still rages on with Instagram chicks these days. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about tartine and what I feel makes a good one. Well, first of all, the bread is everything. You can't take shit bread, excuse me, and make a good tartine. So I would um, hopefully be making a long fermented sourdough. Now, we make um, two types of bread here at the Snow Home. We grind our own organic grains and make sourdough. It takes several days to make it very long ferment. We also do some yeast bread, and that ferments 24 hours. And what I find is I cannot eat regular bread. I don't eat a lot of bread at all anyway. But if, even if I have two or three bites of 
um, cheap bread, rolls, whatever like that. Two to three days later, the side of my nose um, literally flakes off and gets extremely red and itchy every single time. However, if I eat these long fermented sourdoughs, nothing happens. And there's been research out of Europe even recently that people that are celiac can eat long fermented sourdough bread without any trouble. Of course, uh, do that at your own risk. So let's talk a little bit about the tartine. So you want good bread and it's sliced a little thicker than normal. So either a good sourdough. The other bread I like to make is a, a bread that comes from Denmark. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment, but it has a crap load of seeds in it. So sesame seeds, flax seeds, sunflower seeds, and rye flour, rye flour, whole wheat flour. And that's a long fermented sourdough bread. And it's dense as heck. And I love that about it. So one of those two types of bread. Now, if you have a really good toaster, you can slice it a little thicker than normal and toast it maybe two times to get a good uh, crusty exterior. You can put it under the broiler. You can also put it in a uh, heavy bottom dry skillet with maybe a touch of olive oil in there and you'll get a good crust on it. Now, some sandwiches, you can take a piece of garlic clove, and because the bread is sort of um, well-cooked and sharp on the edges, you can simply rub a garlic clove, and it will go right into the bread and make something really awesome. You can top that off with something simple like heirloom tomatoes, fresh basil, and some good um, Himalayan pink salt, and you're in heaven. But I'm just going to throw out a few ideas. So um, I really like these breads with different cheeses. You can certainly do uh, savory and also sweet so just a couple of ideas, some store-bought cheese ideas would be borsin, chive, and garlic, or, or any other flavors. Borsin cheese usually comes in a specialty section. Um, I've been eating this stuff for decades. It comes in a little little box, a white box, and it's it's wrapped in like a foil. And that stuff's incredible, very flavorful. You can smear that on some of this bread, and heck, you can put anything on it. Um, other cheeses which are great are, are ricotta cheese and that's very simple to make at home if you have any dairy animals ricotta is a piece of cake it means recooked in italian but it's a very easy way to make a fresh cheese um so i like to do two ways with the ricotta season with a little basil uh, extra virgin olive oil maybe roasted garlic or even minced garlic then i do a sweetened one where i whip it with uh, raw honey um, sometimes maple syrup but i really love whipping raw honey into the ricotta and then you can use it on the breads also sliced sharp cheddar like really good sharp cheddar um, definitely not craft singles people Next would be brie or similar, and I'll throw a shout out to which cheese I think, I mean, I love a lot of cheeses. There's a, a guy in Vermont, um, Thistle Hill Farm, and he makes cheese called Tarantaise. Hard to get because it's in such demand, but it's raw milk, uh, organic cheese from Jersey cows that cows are hand milked. It's an amazing cheese, so check out um, Tarantaise. But another one, which is probably my favorite cheese of the world, is called Epoisse, E-P-O-I-S-S-E-S. -S -S -S. This is from Burgundy, France. It is amazing cheese, so, so good. It's a cow's milk cheese with a, a washed rind. You know, they, they use um, different spirits and herbs, I believe, on the outside of it. It's got a like an orange rind, and it's super soft in the middle. It's pretty assertive. If you're, you know, afraid of good cheese, this may not be for you. But those of you that really like cheese and you have access to a cheese shop or even online, Epoise is amazing. 
So that's another thing you can put on these toasts. So some topping ideas, you know, you're gardening a lot. Um, and I know people that they garden a lot and then they don't know what to do with the, with the vegetables, oddly enough, or the fruits, but heirloom tomatoes, any kind, sliced fresh, put on top of just about any of those cheeses with some good, you know, Celtic salt or Himalayan salt would be amazing. Olive oil. Um, caramelized onions smeared on top of some of this toast with Romano cheese is wonderful. Grilled figs. Those of you that have fig trees, when those things are ripe, you normally are overrun with them. Grill them, put them on top of that honey feta, and maybe you could do some reduced balsamic. That would be delicious. Also, um, one of my favorites is good, sharp English cheddar with thinly sliced radishes, a handful of sprouts, maybe a little extra virgin olive oil and salt. Incredible. Um, another one I love to do, particularly when I'm on Cape Cod, which I'll be next week, is I take um, smoked fish, either bluefish, mullet, whatever I can get. So I'll make a smoked fish spread. Put it on this toast with fresh chives and cherry tomatoes and salt. Another easy one would be roasted red peppers, basil, roasted garlic, and Romano. So this hopefully will give you an idea on how to make the tartine, which is an open-faced sandwich. Just make three or four of these things. Put them on a nice platter with some fresh herbs, a drizzle of olive oil, nice wine, even a cold beer. And uh, I think your family and friends would be very impressed. So with that, this has been Keith Snow. Do check out foodstoragefeast.com. If you want to save $50, use the coupon code SAVE5050, SAVE50. And those that are in the um, MSB, just contact me, KeithSnow, gmail.com, and I've got an even bigger discount for you. And I think everybody needs to be storing and growing as much food as possible. With that, I appreciate everybody who supports me at HarvestEating.com and also Jack's work here on the TSP podcast. And if you want to check out some really cool posts from my vacation, go to Instagram.com slash HarvestEating. Make sure you follow me there and there'll be plenty of reels and good stuff coming from Cape Cod. With that, thanks everybody. Take care. So some of you just listened to that and said, but I don't eat, I don't eat bread. Jack, Jack and Dr. Ken got me on the keto train. I just heard about autophagy. What the hell, man? Okay, I'm going to tell you the base to use this same principle with is the chaffle. C-H-A-F-F-L-E. It's basically egg and cheese, and if you want to make it a little more bread-like, a bit of either almond flour or coconut flour... If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, I'll try to remember to add it to the notes, but I give, I have a whole video where I've how to make perfect chaffles, and it's, it's probably going further than you need to. And ironically, I was going to make the little mini waffle maker my item of the day today, and almost all the models are sold out, so I didn't. Uh, you can make these chaffles with. And basically, again, it's like egg cheese, maybe a little almond flour. Uh, some baking powder, and then you make it in a, a mini waffle maker. And it makes a beautiful little round, somewhat waffle-like thing that makes a great conveyance system for stuff like this. And here would be an awesome way to do this and really have a nutritional powerhouse. So you make up some chaffles. Also make some of your own cheese. Do some of the yogurt cheese and do like... Um, a garlic black pepper yogurt cheese, which is where we take the yogurt, we put it in a cheesecloth or a tea towel or what have you, and we strain it overnight so that it becomes more cheese-like. But before we hang it up, 
what we want to do is we want to mix whatever herbs and things that you want in it into it then. Because if you do that, it's much easier than trying to mix it once it's formed and it's kind of more firm. And so make, like, like I said, like garlic and black pepper would be fantastic. Uh, then smear that on top of your chaffle. And then, like you said, any out toppings you can do. It's basically making a, a cool little salad uh, on top of the, the bread. Tartine actually means toast, I think. But here would be a really great combination that is just dramatically simple. Do the yogurt cheese smear, pine nuts, arugula, and fresh basil. And if you want to add a little bit of tomato, yeah, just count the carbs. Um, all kinds of things you can do taking this principle and using chaffles. And I realized listening to this, and I had never heard of tartine, I've been making chaffle tartines for years now since I went keto. I Basically, whatever is available, you make this kind of really fresh, amazing mini salad with some cheese and something that gives you some crunch. Walnut is great with that, uh, etc. Chives, I mean, like anything. And who knew? I was a chef and I didn't know it. Uh, next up, choosing a generator from Derek Bon Pietro. What's up, TSP listeners? Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question from Scott on some generator stuff, so let's get into it. Now, Scott, he's got a pretty big uh, question here, and I'm going to try to shorten some of this up, so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but Scott's looking for a couple of features here. He's got a 30-amp circuit on his travel trailer. He wants dual fuel, gasoline, and propane, light enough to maneuver by myself, inverter generator for less noise, less fuel consumption, easy starting so the wife or daughters could start if necessary, reasonable noise level. So, Scott's question. When I'm looking to purchase a generator, main use will be travel trailer camping. On a weekend outing, I'll have two 20-pound propane tanks on the trailer, so I want a generator that runs on LP. My travel trailer uses the 30-amp circuit when we plug it in at campgrounds. I'd like to be able to run air conditioning during hot, humid weather to be able to sleep at night. Looking to purchase some land, and we'll use it for dry camping and to run slash charge tools for projects. Now to paraphrase a little bit, uh, Scott wants to also use it for some emergency outage stuff at home, you know, plug in, refrigerator, freezer, stuff like that. He wants to be able to get it in and out of his truck by himself, possibly using a ramp. Cost-wise, he's willing to spend the money to do whatever it takes, but obviously wants to save as much. And then he's got some specific ones like a Champion 3400 and a Westinghouse 4500. So, Scott, let's just get right into it and see what we can do. Now, some of these features you're looking for aren't necessarily going to be on the same machine. And so, really, I think the big divide we've got going on here is are we going with like a suitcase inverter generator, like a classic EU2000, the old Honda suitcase, or are you going to one that's the next model up? So that's going to be one that could potentially be open frame or even a closed frame, so a fully enclosed one, but that's going to be like a big square, and it's going to be probably three times the weight, so around 130, 150 pounds, something like that. So the size is the big divide, and the smaller one is going to be pull start only. So there's really no electric start units. I think Ames make like makes a 2,000-watt electric start, but it requires a, a battery to be plugged in through an accessory port, and they're an oddball, and I haven't seen a lot of great feedback about that one. But So for the most part, all of the 2,000-watt-size suitcase generators, no electric start. Now, I've got a 2,000-watt, and honestly, it pull starts pretty easy, and I think potentially your wife or your daughters could pull start it. Um, I'd maybe want to try to find one that somebody's got and see if they could start it before committing to that. Now, the bonus to that is you can pretty much pick that thing up one hand and throw it in the back of your truck. 
So it's super portable, and they are very reliable if you went with, like, the EU2200, which is the newest style. And honestly, it's like the golden standard for suitcase generators. And this is going to power a lot of stuff at home, maybe not at the same time, but there's really not much that you're going to throw up against that little guy as far as, like, your appliances, like your refrigerator, your freezer. If you have, like, an oil furnace or boiler, you could run that. You can't run any kind of resistive electric heat or air conditioning with it, but if you're doing one or two devices at a time, you know, you got your refrigerator in and you're running a laptop and charging that or maybe running a TV, there's really not much more you need. But can they start it? That's the big one. Now, as far as the travel trailer is concerned, you've got a 30 amp connection. You're going to need an adapter to run that off of the Honda because it's only got a 15 amp plug on it. Not a big deal. Now, it's going to run everything in your travel trailer, no problem. My concern is the air conditioner. So if you have an old style rooftop AC, that's simply on or off, and when that thing goes to kick on, that compressor needs about three times the amount of running power in order to start, and usually the little inverter generators are not good with that, so you can get a soft start modification for it, which will certainly help it out a lot, but realistically, you got to figure out what size AC you have, and I think like the Honda's good for like eh, 13,500 BTUs, somewhere in there, which honestly is probably what you got on there, or maybe smaller, so it'll most likely work, but you want to definitely check out the specs on the AC and compare it to what the Honda can do before you pull the trigger on one of those. Now, as far as the suitcase ones, a lot of those are going to be single fuel only. Uh, I personally have a Honda 2000. I've got a Sportsman 800. Our company that I work for uses a Generac 2200, I think, and those guys have run that thing out of oil, and they just, just about kill the thing all the time, but it continues to run even on its side and fuel leaking everywhere, and it looks like it's been thrown out the back of the truck and it's still alive. So I don't think you can really go wrong with most of those as far as an offering. Now, when we step up to a 3,000 to 4,500 watt, we are jumping way up in weight. It's a little bit bigger. Now, all of that weight is realistically the bigger engine for the power, but also the electric start. So now we've got a starter motor and a battery that's in there, so obviously it takes up some more space and weighs a little bit more. Are you lifting up a 150-pound generator in the back of your truck? Eh, probably not. I don't think most people are. Now, you said you've got a ramp, so as long as you feel comfortable wheeling that into the back of your truck by yourself, I'd say probably spend the extra money and go up to the bigger size because now you've got electric star and now you've got no worries about your daughters or your wife starting the generator up. Now, Honda's got a 3,000-watt inverter generator, and that's probably another golden standard, but you're going to pay about 2300 bucks for that, so it's pretty pricey. And it's single fuel only. Now, there's also a Predator 3,500 watt single fuel. That's like $800, I believe, or $700 out the door. That's a pretty good value. And you're going to find that the Predator 3,500 is a pretty popular inverter generator of that size. Now, obviously, it's not going to be the quality of the Honda. Honda is definitely above and beyond everybody else. But honestly, I probably wouldn't fear spending that kind of money because you can buy three of them for the same price as the Honda. So that's really going to be your judgment call. Now, as far as dual fuel, Honda does not make a dual fuel. So if you're going that route, you're going to have to either buy one that's been modified out of the box. So you could go to like a company, Century Fuels, and you can buy a kit, install it yourself, or have somebody install it, and that'll run propane as well. That's going to come with a really nice quality IMCO demand regulator, and all of those components are very high quality. And not much money. And Century can make conversion kits for a lot of other brands. So I think if you're going to run LP, I would go with an aftermarket kit. So a lot of the factory dual fuel generators, their fuel components are not really that great. I have personally swapped, I think, about three carburetors on dual fuel units. 
because they just stopped working. The unit wouldn't start or it would run and then shut down after a couple seconds. And even the carburetor is pretty cheap money. We're talking 20 or 30 bucks for a repair bill for them. It's two to $300. So I haven't found really good quality dual fuel generators from the factory. Champion sells a lot of the dual fuels. They're probably one of the most common ones out there. Again, I, I just, if you're going to spend that kind of money and buy that particular model, just be aware they're a little bit maintenance hungry, even though the LP is supposed to save you on maintenance because the carburetor doesn't gum up. I have found units that are two or three years old that need new carburetors anyway. So it's kind of a crapshoot. Just be aware of that. Now, the Champion unit you sent me, it's a 3,400 watt closed frame inverter generator, and it's probably going to run you 1000 1200 bucks depending on which options you get. Some of them have like a remote start and stuff like that. But So this is going to do everything you want out of the box. It's dual fuel. It's got a 30-amp RV connection on it, so you can literally plug it in with the same cord you use when you go to a campsite. And it's going to do everything only weighing 95 pounds, which is probably on the limit of one guy to lift up in their truck. You know, you can heave that thing up there. Sure, it's not nice, but you can do it. And it's got the electric start. Now, again, with the propane, sure, it's nice, but the quality of the components is pretty low when you get these dual fuels out of the box from the manufacturer and you don't get an aftermarket kit with better regulators. But this one's only rated to go like 14 and a half hours on a single 20-pound tank, and that's at a quarter load. So you're going to eat through all the propane you've got on board just to get you through a weekend, and that doesn't include cooking or running like an air conditioner because we're only at a quarter load. So you're going to barely squeak by where gasoline, sure, you're going to have to carry a couple cans, but guess what? You can just run down to the gas station and just get more fuel. Maybe your campsite has propane refueling. Great. That's certainly going to help you out, but just be aware of the limitations. You're thinking you're adding more features to it, but I personally, I just don't think you're better off doing that. Use your propane for cooking, run the gasoline in the generator. So my personal opinion I think if you can get your wife and daughters to pull start a Honda EU2000 or 2200, I'd go that route. And if you wanted to run propane, I'd put one of those Century fuel conversion kits on it. And you'll have a super quiet, long-lasting, reliable, very portable generator for not a whole lot of money. You can stick that thing anywhere, even in the trunk of a car. You can take it anywhere you want, whether you're going camping, tailgating, you're going to a property to go do some work, I think... It's the most versatile, and it's the best bang for the buck. And if it's just not enough power for you, then step it up to a 3,000 to 4,500 watt. That's my recommendation. Scott, I hope that helps you go in the right direction there. As always, guys, thank you for the questions. Take care. All right, good stuff there from Derek. And I, I like the idea of thinking multifunctional with a generator. It's one thing to have a generator that sits outside of your house and runs things when the power's out. Having a portable, movable generator that gives you flexibility and gives you more functionality, I think, is a good way to approach choosing a generator for your needs. I'm also a big believer in two is one is one is none. There are a lot of inexpensive, smaller uh, inverter generators out there that can be had for well under five. Bucks. I recommend whatever you choose as a primary generator, you also get one of those because if your main generator won't start, you have problems with it, etc., you always still have something, and something is better than nothing, well, most of the time anyway. Next up, Jeff Lawton on designing a property when you're dealing with um, recurring flash flooding. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And uh, we have a question here coming in from the southwest in a desert zone by the look of it and an area that's getting quite a lot of floods. 
um, and they're probably flash floods in its um, desert dry land. Someone up on high ground, but their neighbours' um, yards become a funnel for about six acres of runoff from a nearby hillside, and um, they want to know what can be done if purchasing a home site or prepping it for flooding in areas where flash floods are possible, aside from don't build on the low area. Well, what you need to do is you need to turn the, the problem of the slut of the flood into the solution, and that means you've got to you, you've got to take the energy of the flood with everything it's carrying, and it'll be carrying some good stuff. It'll be carrying a lot of organic matter and fine silts and sands, and uh, you need to interrupt that flood with a um, solid structure. Um, a gabion is the ideal, which is a large rock wall, either with very large rocks, well built so it can take the, the impact of the flood or um, smaller rocks in wire baskets all locked together. Well, it's a very traditional system and there are modern versions with the wire baskets which lock together very well. So the, the flood has to come down, hit that and then that immediately slows it down and drops a silt field. They then take that out sideways on contour into swales but the swales themselves can have gabions, minor gabions, in the entrance to each swale. If you can go out one side, great. If you go out two sides, even better. Go out on contour. So as the water comes down, it hits the gabion and slows, dropping that silt field, and then goes out sideways. And the, the vol a large volume of water goes out as far as you can on contour. Well, when you take water out on contour, it pacifies significantly, extremely. And, and there's very little power in that water that's out flooding out sideways. Um, it's almost like a rising tide inside the swell line. And the swells themselves are absorbent, so it's actually taking quite a lot of the water into the soils and subsoils. And that swell man will grow a lot of trees. And that'll, that'll reduce the evaporation um, that's happening on site. And it'll reduce it through shade, it'll reduce it through wind buffering, and also the additions of organic matter from the trees themselves. And they can just be really, really hardy pioneer trees to start with, like Prosopis and other desert species. And later on, as the conditions change, you can build it into um, productive trees in whatever type you like that fit into that temperature regime. But the water needs to eventually or whenever there's volume go carry on downhill having dropped most of its silt so the top of the gabion wall or a spillway side of the gabion wall needs to be the overflow point which means the swale mounds going out sideways is a contour large large depending on the size of the property contour dishes on contour um so they're perfectly level in the base. But the, the material that you've excavated for the ditch is on the lower side, which is, means you increase the, top, the topsoil height and it's an ideal growing condition for trees. That mound, that swell mound, needs to be higher than the spillway that lets the water go over the top of the gabion or over one side of the gabion. That has to be accurately measured. So your swale mound is higher. So you've got the overflow point of the gabion halfway or two-thirds of the way up the swale mound. So the swales fill with a significant amount of water 
and you have that advantage of soaking that water, pacifying a significant amount of that water, soaking that in with quite a lot of suspended nutrient and soluble nutrient, and then when it gets to full capacity, it overflows the gabion. Now, you can repeat that downhill if you have enough room each time, like <clears throat> like a shock absorber on 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 a suspension of a car. It... it it takes the shock out of the impact of the flood, dissipates a lot of the energy out sideways, which then dissipates even more when it soaks in. And at the point of complete overflow, like the bottoming out of a suspension on a car, it then overflows the, the, the gabion. And then that can be repeated downhill as many times as you can, where you can build appropriate gabions, where there's a narrow neck in the gully of any type, similar to a position where you build a dam and get a lot of backup water, you build a gabion and get a lot of backed up silt field. When it stops raining, your swells have soaked water, which is great for the landscape rehabilitation, but also your silt field is actually full of water and it's away from the sun, away from evaporation. The swale soaked it in away from the sun, the silt fields soaked water in, and it's holding water in the silt field. It's, it's actually humidifying the soil around the silt field, so it becomes a great area to plant trees as well, which again reduces evaporation uh, through shade, wind buffering, and organic matter additions. So you're holding water longer on site. Plus, you've gathered the nutrient from the floodwaters themselves. So you can turn the problem into the solution. You just need to be brave enough to design these systems that are going to take heavy impact in the flood line, but dissipate that impact as far as possible out on contour. And you're into green in the desert in a beautiful way. All right, next up. What is a moving average? How do we calculate a moving average? What use is there to a moving average when it comes to stocks and investing in assets? John Pugliano has that for you. Hello, TSP. I have a quick financial question for you today. It comes from JP in Montana. It's a technical question. I'll try and not get too down in the weeds with the details on it so you can follow along. Here's JP's question. He's asking about using Yahoo Finance to chart simple moving averages. And he says he understands using the principle, but when he uses Yahoo Finance and he zooms in and out over either shorter or larger time periods, for example, using like a three-month chart versus a two-year chart, that the moving averages seem completely different. Well, JP, I did a video. In fact, it was the first video that I ever put up over my YouTube channel. I'll send that link to Jack. But if you go over to my YouTube channel, it's easy to find. It's appropriately titled, How to Chart a Simple Moving Average with Yahoo Finance. That video is a little out of date because Yahoo changed some of the features. But overall, that'll tell you exactly what you need to do to chart a simple moving average and some reasons of why you would want to do that. Specifically to your question, though, the thing you want to watch for is that as you change the X time domain of your chart, in many cases, depending upon which charting software you're using, it's going to change the data points that represent the individual events. So, for example, on a one-year or a three-month chart over at Yahoo Finance, the data in that chart is the daily closing price. And so if you run your cursor over that chart's events, you'll see that it changes every day. If you expand that chart out to a two- or a five-year period, then you'll see that those data events 
change to weekly closing prices. And also, depending upon the software, it may give you the choice to set what that event is, but most of them or a lot of them don't. In the case of Yahoo Finance, whenever you fill in the parameters to chart your moving average, it's going to simply ask for a period. So it's going to say 50-day period, 10-day period, you know, whatever you put in there. Remember, that's not a 50-day moving average. That's based on the time period of whatever event is covered of the stock chart you're looking at. So if the events are daily, it'll be a 50-day moving average. If you're looking at a two-year chart and each event is a weekly closing price, then if you put 50 in there, you'll now be tracking the 50-week moving average. So if you were looking at that two-year chart and you wanted something close to a 50-day moving average, then you'd put in a number like 10. That would give you a 10-week moving average. And since there's five trading days in a week, a 10-week moving average would be somewhat close to a 50-day moving average. Watch that video on my YouTube channel. It'll explain everything you need to know about moving averages. Hey, that's all I have for today, but next time I'll be back answering some questions about how to teach teenagers about money and to save and invest, and specifically a Fidelity Youth account, which goes above and beyond what normally can be done in a youth custodial account. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. You know, as I'm moving my grandchildren more and more toward thinking as investors and savers and entrepreneurs, I'm really looking forward to next week's segment from John. Next up, we have a great grab bag of three topics from Tim Toolman Cook, who was on the show just, well, yesterday. No, Tuesday. That's right. He was on Tuesday this week. With that, Tim, take it away. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co. Back to answer some more questions for the expert council. I've got three. I'm going to see if I can knock them all out this week. So let's dive right in. This one comes from Carrie, and he says, Hey, Tim, I've got an on-demand propane water heater on the south side of my house. For the most day, that tank and therefore the gas line is in direct sunlight. Do you think I should protect that line? If so, how would you go about it? Feel free to use this question in a video or post if you'd like. Thanks, Carrie. Okay, so um, basically, he sent me a picture, and it's a uh, tankless water heater with a propane tank and a hose, and it does have southern exposure, all-day uh, sunlight. The biggest thing with propane is the fact that they do not recommend it getting above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, a daytime temperature without including all the sun absorption, reflection, that sort of thing can easily hit 120 degrees, especially down where Carrie lives. So I would honestly recommend getting some sort of shade around that. Now, all the digging I did basically said that... You don't need to worry about it rupturing because it does have a vent in it, so it will off-vent if it gets too hot. But you're wasting propane. And number two, it said anytime it exceeds 120 degrees, you're exposing it to microcracks. And over time, you can end up compromising the structural integrity of a propane tank. So I would honestly build something like a lean-to, you know, something that's good and open so that it still breathes, nothing is, you know, contracted so gases can build up. But, you know, I would put something with a roof and something that shades it on the south side. It could even be something temporary. Some shade cloth would even work. But, you know, I might build a little lean-to with a little metal roofing on the side, on the top, and then maybe some, well, even tin all the way around. But that's just my suggestion. I would just say get it out of the direct sunlight. Just, you know, honestly, all the reading I've done, 
It doesn't seem to be too big of a concern, but they do not recommend getting it above 120 degrees. So yes, get it in the shade if you can. Okay, this one comes from Ken over on Float, and he wanted to know what the benefits of going with a flat 4x8 panel of styrofoam insulation on the exterior of a house is over choosing vinyl siding with the insulation built into the back of it. And this question came from the fact that he's probably been watching me on social media and been seeing that I'm residing my house. And I chose to go with 4x8 sheets of 3 quarter inch styrofoam with a foil backer on it and have been covering the entire house with it. Now, there's also a product out there. You can buy vinyl siding with a thin layer of foam attached to the back of it. Now, there's a few reasons I went with 4x8 styrofoam on the exterior of the house. But the main one is that I have old wood clapboard on there, and it makes for a really uneven nailing surface to put vinyl siding over top of. So when you take 4x8 sheets of foam and put it over the entire part of the house, it gives you a nice, level, flat surface to attach the vinyl siding to. Also, less thermal breaks that way. When you have four by eight sheets and you tape all the edges, you basically have no areas for air to get into. Vinyl works the same way, but you've got a whole bunch of basically pieces of foam put together when you're snapping insulation together. And the other one was cost. The vinyl siding with the insulation on the back, at least in my area, is prohibitively expensive compared to going with um, four by eight sheets of insulated styrofoam and putting it up. And honestly, it really didn't take that much longer. But what the main reason for me was getting a nice flat work surface over top of the existing clapboard without having to remove the clapboard. And it added a nice insulation to the house so that I get a better R value and hopefully it heats and cools better without needing to you know, disturb the interior of the house. So I hope that helps. I hope that answers the question and a little bit behind my thought process as to why I would choose 4x8 styrofoam over the pre-insulated vinyl siding. Okay, next question comes from Dan, and he wants to know how I know how much to charge for hauling junk. He'd had an experience recently where he underpriced the job really badly and was disappointed and wanted to know how I work out my pricing structure. Well, first off, Dan, I want to let you know, I just recently did a moving job for somebody that I massively underpriced, and it was disappointing, but I did it anyway. So for me, locally, uh, if, if it's just a half-ton load that I can load myself, I charge 75 and if I if it's a truck and trailer load, I charge 125 The landfill is only about five miles out of town, so normally I can do a dump run in about an hour. Now, of course, I just wanted to let you know where my prices were so that you have an idea. Prices will vary, whatever your market will dictate. I started a lot lower than that, worked my way up. Remember, a couple of things. You need to always think about the dump fees. So any fees above and beyond that, I charge back to the customer. In my area, I'm lucky. I can just put it on their P.O. box. And so I ask the customer for their P.O. box. And then the landfill bills them if they go over the limit for the year. But if there's special environmental fees or if you're paying by the ton, you need to figure out a way to make sure the customer knows, hey, I have a flat rate plus whatever the dump fees are. Or if you want to be a little more creative, make sure that you know what the maximum the dump fees are going to be for you and build that into your cost so there's no surprises for the customer. But the biggest thing is finding a price that pays for your time, that makes money, because one of the biggest things about dump runs is it is hard on vehicles. You're beating and pounding, you're always putting, I'm always overloading things and strapping things down and scraping and dinging up my truck. 
So you always got to figure out there's that. You have to figure in your liability insurance, all of that. But the biggest thing is, you know, start a price. And if, if people are happy with the price, slide your price up a little bit. And if you're starting to get people balking at the price a little bit once in a while, you've probably found that happy medium. You know, Jack always says you should be a little uncomfortable with your pricing, and that's the case. I'm even thinking about sliding my prices up just a little bit because they seem to be working really well for me at the moment. But basically, you got to figure in the cost of getting rid of it, the time that it's going to take for you, and any hidden fees. Get all of that figured in, and then find a price you're comfortable with that the market will hold for you. Okay, guys, that's it for me. Thanks again for giving me a chance to answer all these questions. Keep sending them in. Send them to Jack. And uh, anything you need to know about uh, landscaping, entrepreneurship, and, of course, tools. And if you want to drop by the YouTube channel and check us out on Sunday nights, we have Talking Tools live stream every Sunday night, 8 o'clock Mountain Time, where we interact as a community. And I normally have a theme where I do a Q&A or a year-later review. And I'm going to start getting some other experts in so we can have a chat and just talk and learn from one another. So I hope you drop by, guys. Anyway, thanks a lot. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right. I, I want to talk to you guys now as we wrap up today about principles over preference. Okay. And I, I, I again, that's the term that uh, I first heard uttered by Vin Armani, but I was looking at quotes today, and I saw this quote, and thinking back to the time and the context that it came from, I think it's pretty much saying the same thing, and when I read part of the speech that this comes from, from Dwight Eisenhower's first inaugural address, I think you'll see what I'm talking about, and you'll again, I think you'll also look at our country and wonder what the hell happened, that we have gone from a man that spoke this way to a man that can barely speak. Anyway, Dwight's quote As it stands alone, a people that values its privileges above its principles will soon lo lose both. Let me read, starting uh, about a paragraph before that quote and continuing through the rest of the speech. And this speech isn't very long because what I'm about to read to you won't take long, and it's about a third of it. We must be ready to dare all for our country. For history does not long entrust the care of freedom to the weak or the timid. We must acquire proficiency in defense and display stamina in purpose. We must be willing individually and as a nation to accept whatever sacrifices may be required of us. A people that values its privileges above its principles soon loses both. These basic precepts are not lofty abstractions far removed from matters of daily living. They are laws of spiritual strength that generate and define our material strength. Patriotism means equipped forces and prepared citizenry. Moral stamina means more energy and more productivity on the farm and in the factory. Love of liberty means the guarding of every resource that makes freedom possible. From the sanctity of our families and the wealth of our soil to the genius of our scientists. And so each citizen plays an indispensable role. The productivity of our heads, our hands, and our hearts is the source of all strength we can command for both the enrichment of our lives and the winning of the peace. 
No person, no home, no community can be beyond the reach of this call. We are summoned to act in wisdom and in conscience, to work with industry, to teach with persuasion, to preach with conviction, to weigh our every deed with care and with compassion. For this truth must be clear before us. Whatever America hopes to bring to pass in the world must, in the world must first come to pass in the heart of America. The peace we seek then is nothing less than the practice and fulfillment of our whole faith among ourselves and in our dealings with others. This signifies more than the stilling of guns, easing the sorrow of war. More than the escape from death, it is a way of life. More than a haven for the weary, it is a hope for the brave. This is the hope that beckons us onward in this century of trial. This is the work that awaits us to be done with bravery, with charity, and with prayer to Almighty God. This is not just about a dig at Biden either. When I think of the last five people to serve as president of this country, I'm not surprised at how far down we have spiraled. When I, when I read that, when I understand what's being said there, when I realize where we were and the trajectory that has occurred in my adult lifetime, I'm not surprised that we are where we are. I'm not surprised that we have become a people... <clears throat> who seeks constantly to put our preferences before our principles. You know, <clears throat> one of our current Supreme Court justices, and I won't even say his name because it will taint the reality of what he said. You might know who it is, but you should let it go. You should let it go. And he was actually quoting a former justice anyway. He said, if you're a good judge you're often not happy with your decisions. If you're a good judge, you're not happy at times with your decisions. There's not what you wanted to decide. And the reason is that you're judging the law on how it was written, not how you wish it was written, not on what you think is right or wrong. But you're judging the law as what it actually is. You're judging the law as a contract, And a contract says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. That's principle above preference. That's why I think sometimes, that, as much as I hate the state, I think sometimes we're unfair to, to, to judges. Oh, he turned his back on us or whatever. Did, did he follow the contract? Did he strictly interpret it as it was written? Because that's what he's supposed to do. That's principle above preference. Principle above preference is where... I look at a social media platform. Let's say Gab. And there's a lot of asshole racists on Gab. Absolutely. There are racist assholes on Gab. I'm not saying Gab is made up of racist assholes. I'm just saying there's racist assholes on Gab, and because they have free speech, they tend to be really easy to identify. Inside of me, there is a total contempt of hatred for racists. So when I see somebody in my feed on Gab who's a racist asshole... I wish they weren't there. But then I remember my principle, freedom of speech, is absolute. It is or it isn't. And I have every power in my being to not read what they say, to block them, to delete their, you know, to delete them from my feed or what have you, so I don't have to look and hear what they have to say. 
I am no more required to hear what you have to say than I, than I should be required to block you from t speaking to somebody else who does want to hear what you want to say. I have a choice there. My preference is that people aren't racist assholes. The reality is some are. My principle is everybody has a right to freedom of speech, even when it is in the face of my preference. My ability to shield myself from some of the things that people say so that I don't have to listen to their bullshit, in essence, is a privilege. Because there are places where it doesn't exist, where you have to listen to what other people have to say, where you're somehow punished. I'm it should be a right, but it's, it's not. A right is only that which can be defended. We do not have to like what other people say and do, to get along, to coexist. We don't, and we're not going to, and we should stop pretending that we are. Am I saying that there will be people in the world who I will never get along with? Yes. Am I saying there are people in the world who will never get along with me? Yes. Am I saying that's okay? Absolutely. Up until the point where one person attempts to force another to accept their beliefs, I don't care. That's principle. That's principle. There might be certain substances that I think are a bad idea to use. You might want to use them. As long as you're not breaking in my house and stealing my TV to use them, not my business. There might be certain substances that you don't think anybody should use that I think it's totally okay for people to use. Not your business. Preference does not dictate freedom. Principles do. And I know some would say, well, principles are subjective. I agree. But there are core principles that most people in this country, despite their political differences, agreed upon for a very, very long time. And the country is now in the garbage can because we've abandoned those principles. We're not in the garbage can because some people think differently than you do or I do. We're not in the garbage can because many people think like we do. Neither one of those is the problem. It's the abandonment of the common principles that has caused our problems. We now want to right the wrongs of racism by creating a new racism. Rather than striving for the principle that most Americans wanted to see fulfilled for decades. Treat everybody the same regardless of what color they are. We've abandoned that principle for the preference of righting perceived wrongs. Of course we're in the garbage can. There's a song Hank Williams did, I think Jr., all the way back in the 70s, called The Snowball Headed for Hell. And he was talking about this country. I never agreed with that song at the time that it was written. I was a kid, but I didn't agree with it. Maybe I didn't interpret it the right way. I don't think it was a story of what was going on. It was more a prophecy of what was to come. Because that's where we are now. We are so far from a people that values its principles above its preferences 
that we can, I can scarcely recognize my country today. I can scarcely recognize it. And it seems like every time I get hope, because for every person that I hear speak or I meet that will put their principles above their preferences, there's two or three that are only concerned with their preferences. They've thrown away principle. Principle doesn't even matter anymore. Let me read a little bit of that speech by Eisenhower again. Just one paragraph. No person, no home, no community can be beyond the reach of this call. We are summoned to act in wisdom and in conscience, to work with industry, to teach with persuasion, to preach with conviction, to weigh our every deed with care and with compassion. For this truth must be clear before us. Whatever America hopes to bring to pass in the world must first come to pass in the heart of Americans. You want to know what's wrong with our country? Our hearts are rotten. Our hearts have rotted. Too many decades of having it easy have rotted our very hearts. We're having it easy isn't good enough. We want it easy, and yet at the same time, we want the same results that everybody else gets. The people that work harder, we want the results they have. The people that sacrifice more, we want the results they have. The people that risk more, we want the results they got without the risk, without the work, without the hardship. It's called equity. We have ceased seeking equality. Which can never be attained, by the way. You will never have perfect equality. But at least you can seek it. And at least you can approach it. And at least the goal is noble. And at least it keeps people on a track based on principle. Equity is evil incarnate. Equity is the same result for everybody. Or at minimum, a baseline result that everybody gets no matter what they do. You can do nothing, you can risk nothing, you can invest nothing, you can commit to nothing, and you can still be guaranteed a certain level of privilege. While you bitch about privilege. No, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. And this is the real tragedy here. As we have strayed from this type of thinking, we have not strayed from the effects of no longer thinking and acting and being this way. We will get the results of this cancer. It will not go away. It will not disappear. Somebody's not going to come out with a gadget or a gizmo that fixes it. We will face a reckoning for this behavior. You don't have to be religious to believe that. It certainly has religious connotations if you are. But you do not have to be religious or spiritual to understand the basics of karma. When you behave stupidly long enough, you suffer for your stupidity. And this nation collectively is behaving like a bunch of spoiled children. We cannot seek peace when we don't practice peaceful behavior. We can't. We can't seek equality and equity at the same time because the two are inherently opposite to each other. 
We cannot be brave while we behave like weak and timid individuals. We cannot hide from an illness with a 99.9% survival rate and claim to be the home of the brave. We cannot. We can't. It's not possible. It is claiming to be one thing while your actions show you to be another, and history has shown that that always, 100% of the time, results in suffering and sorrow and misery, and it is the path that has been chosen by the majority of your countrymen if you live here in America, and the majority of your countrymen if you live just about anywhere in the developed world, period. So what's the solution? You know the solution by now. You have to act on principle over preference and privilege regardless of what the people around you do. Because the, re the world is, one way or another, over time, proven itself over and over and over and over again to always be a meritocracy. Those who do more, risk more, succeed more, have more. In the worst of times, the middle of times, and the best of times. It doesn't change. Now, in the worst of times, those who work the hardest, sacrifice the most, give the most, try the most, succeed the most, risk the most, they may have less than that same person would have in the best of times. But they still end up ahead of those around them. Because this is a law of nature. And nature's laws are unlike man's laws. You can pass any law you want in the halls of a Congress or off the desk of an executive order of a president or a governor, and it will not change natural law. If they were to pass a law tomorrow that says men will no longer be affected by gravity, and if gravity shall interfere with the acts of men, gravity shall be fined and imprisoned, and you walk to the top of a building and step off of it, you will plummet to your death or serious injury. You cannot be taken away from the consequences of natural law through the acts of man's law. It cannot be done. It has never worked and it never will. The dollar won't stay valuable just because it's America. Because it has a picture of an eagle and a dead president on it won't fix it. Just because we were great doesn't mean we will be great. These are fictions. These are fictions. And they've always been fictions. The most promising thing I've heard this week came from my grandson, who's 10. We were just talking in the kitchen. I don't even know what led to it, but we were talking about learning in school and history, and he was talking about before we started homeschooling. And he said about history in school and talking about America, but they only ever told us everything that we did that was good. Where'd you hear that? He said... Nowhere. Just they never said we did anything bad. Huh. I said, so what does that mean? He said, well, we must have done things bad. Everybody does things bad sometimes. I said, so what does that mean? He, mean, he said, it means they're lying to me. And then he kind of stammered on it a bit because he realized they weren't really lying. They were, And he said, they're hiding things from me. And then I thought of the words of Mike and Sula Breeze. There is nothing that a child doesn't want to learn that you can force them to learn. And there's nothing that they do want to learn that you can prevent them from learning. 
The truth exists. The truth is. And the truth will remain the truth no matter how hard we try to bury it or make it go away. This country is what it is. And all it's good and all it's bad. And none of it should be erased, denied, or run away from. But what made this country great, in spite of all the things we did wrong, was a willingness to place principle ahead of preference and privilege. And we have lost that as a nation. And the only way to get it back is to stop worrying about how much we've lost and simply as individuals choose not to let it be taken from us. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up for the day. Let me remind you guys that if you want to join the MSB, this is the week to do it. You can become an MSB member for $30 a year, and you can lock that rate in for life. The normal price is $50. Bucks. Use the discounts. You will get your money back. I just added a great discount provider yesterday. Uh, it hasn't gone out in the announcements or social media or anything yet, but it's called Angie's Garden. These guys are great. Uh, they've been sending me their Tea of the Month Club for quite a while now. I decided to bring them on. They do herbal teas, herbal preparations, and they also do CBD-based products as well. They even have products for your dogs. Um, they're just fantastic. Super high-quality Great discount. That was just added to the MSB. If you use CBD-type products or Kratom, we have several other vendors in that. Just that segment alone can completely pay for your disc for your membership every year, even at full price, and now you're at a great discount. We have plants. We have seeds, gardening supplies, fertilizers, tactical gear. Gunadapters.com is a sponsor. I mean, we have a ton of stuff that you can save money on, stuff that you're probably going to one way or another buy anyway, and every year you can put your money back in your pocket and support the show. And at 30 bucks a year, it is super easy to do. Consider becoming a member today. Uh, the discount code to get that discount is GIVEME30, G-I-V-E-M-E-3-0. Uh, use that when you sign up. The lifetime memberships are sold out, guys. Sorry. They, that This time around, I sold 10. I think I ended up selling like 15 because I made a commitment on Tuesday, and uh, they're gone. And so no more. Sorry. All right. The next thing is, remember, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help support us in the work that we do. Um, today's item of the day are steak knives. Was it the movie where the guy got the chick steak knives and she was really pissed? It wasn't it that Scrooged, right? With, uh, was it Tom Hanks was in that? I'm not sure who that was that was in that, but it was like a remake of, uh, Christmas Carol in the 80s or 90s. And he got her steak knives and she threw them at her. So steak knives are a great, uh, kitchen tool. They really are. Um, when it comes to cutting things like steaks, chops, etc., meat on your plate, in my opinion, you want a serrated, high-quality, full-tang knife. That's what you're looking at. You want serrations. You're talking about cutting food on a ceramic plate. You do that with a straight-edge knife, you end up with a dull knife that constantly needs sharpening. A good serrated steak knife will last for years and years and years and never need people. Well, it's harder to sharpen. You don't have to sharpen it. I have a set of these exact steak knives. I actually have two sets of them. But the original set that I bought, I got before I started doing TSP. That's 13 years. They still cut up a steak like a razor blade because that's how meat works with serrations. And they are on sale today for 43% off. 
They regularly sold for 35 bucks, and if you said, I need a set of steak knives, I'd say, buy them for 35 bucks. They're on sale today for $19.95. Buy a set. Buy two. Get them all you can. They're made again by J.A. Hinkles. This is a German company. These are excellent quality knives. 20 bucks for a set of four. If you have had a steak in the last couple weeks, and you're like, rah, rah, when you're cutting it up, get these, and you won't do that anymore. Check them out. Um, they are freaking awesome for the money, and you can always support us no matter what you buy if you start your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. And uh, as I said, I'm trying to bring you Jimmy Buffett music you probably never heard. Uh, this would also go on the line like yesterday's did, um, that some of you may have heard it, but I'm going to go still 98% of you have never heard this song. Uh, it was released in the mid-90s, I think is about the timeline. It is called We Are the People Our Parents Warned Us About. And it's really interesting because I think it, it acknowledges the truth of youth and eventually growing up. Because it talks about in the beginning all the things that, you know, our parents want, well, what his parents wanted for him and how that applies to everybody in our generation, right? Jimmy's a little older than me, but kind of in that whole generation. People right now that are like, I'd say 40 to 70, right? Um, all these things that your parents want for you because they want you to have the opportunities they didn't, blah, 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 blah. And what happens when we grow up? And we go out in the world. We end up doing whatever it is we want to do. We pursue our dreams, and we generally act like morons in the beginning. When I when I say like you know twenty somethings are idiots, I'm not saying like the twenty somethings we have today are idiots. They are, but I'm also saying like when I was a twenty something, I was an idiot. When my dad was a twenty something, he was an idiot. When my grandfather was a twenty something, he was an idiot. You're an idiot. You do crazy, stupid shit. And what happens? Sooner or later, not only are you, you know, you start out being the, the people your parents warned you about. If you don't work really hard or do these things, you'll end up being like these people over here. And you end up being like them. You end up being exactly like the prophecy. And you have a good time. And then eventually you see why your parents worried about it. You grow up. You go into normal, responsible adulthood. And at the same time, you kind of look back to that childhood period, that young adult period, and think, kind of miss that. And the secret to life is maturing enough that you don't lose all the good things in your life and still knowing how to have a great time and still in some ways be that person your parents warned you about. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. We are the people. They couldn't figure out. We are the people.
about 